We are in the book of Revelation. We are in this series that we are calling Shift, in which we are learning about ways that we can shift from maybe things that are maybe not healthy to things that are more healthy. Shifting from things that maybe um, are, in fact, maybe sinful to things that are more God-honoring. And so we have been looking at the beginnings, if you will, the first part, if you will, of Revelation, looking at specifically the seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus himself addresses through the revelation that the Apostle John received. And so we have been looking at how to shift from different things in our own life, but even more importantly, even in our own church, of how shifting from maybe one area to another that would be more God-honoring, that would be more in line with where God wants us to be. And quite frankly, if we're honest about it, these kinds of shifts are never easy. They're simple, but they're never easy, or rarely are they easy. But they're rather simple. And that's the beautiful thing about, about God's Word and about what He expects of us. I think sometimes as followers of Jesus, but even more than that as human beings in general, we sometimes like to complicate things. We need to complicate things for the sake of complicating things. We need to parse things out for the sake of parsing things out. And sometimes that isn't always for the best. And what I love about the gospel and what I love about Jesus is that he is just incredibly simple in his approach to understanding who he is and his message that he came to bring. The gospel message can be understood in just from the youngest to the oldest. That is the beauty of it. That is the absolute beauty of it. Someone said this, and I've shared it before, I'll share it again, that the gospel is shallow enough for a child to play in and yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Right? I mean, that's the beauty of the gospel. And sometimes we complicate things unnecessarily. And so when I say to us today that these shifts that we are called to make are simple, they are. We know what we may need to do if we ever find ourselves in situations that are not necessarily God-honoring, they're not necessarily, in fact, maybe just plain old sinful. We know that we need to make a change, that we know that we may, may need to make a shift. That is a very simple thing. It may not always be easy. There is a difference between simple and easy. Simple isn't always easy, and easy isn't always simple. So we just need to remember that, that as we are going through these things, that we need to understand that what Jesus is sharing with these churches, that in many ways today, churches even today are still struggling with, that churches today maybe even need to make shifts in. Because as we've already seen in these letters that we've looked at so far, is that there were churches that needed to make shifts from theological shifts, that they had their theology was off, that there was some sort of heresy as as we looked at last week, there was some sort of heresy that was infiltrating the church and they needed to make a shift. Or there was some sort of fear that was happening and they needed to make a shift. Or it was rather an application of their theology. I mean, they had their theology down, but man, did they really fall short of actually loving people, of actually fulfilling those very, very simple commands of love God and love others. Which, by the way, Jesus says, that's a summation of the Ten Commandments. And, and you know, that was just a beautiful, again, one of those ideas that's really simple. It's not complicated kind of stuff. And so we have been looking at this, looking at what it looks like for us to make these shifts and why we need to make these shifts. And that at some point, almost every single church will deal with one or two or maybe all of these things that these seven churches were dealing with. Today, we're going to look at a church that was dealing with immorality. That was dealing with immorality. And I realize it might seem rather rote, it might seem rather, um, I don't say routine is the word, because that's really sad if I say that. Um, that it's really kind of, um, I've, heard this, I've heard this song before, Dan, but it's something I think we need to hear again, is that there are times in which churches can suffer from immorality, and if we don't believe that, all we need to do is just look at our culture today. We know this. We know that the churches, that churches in general suffer from immorality. You can look at the Catholic Church that has suffered in recent years from immorality. And, in, and just before we, we begin to might think, oh, those Catholics, they don't have it all together, all that kind of stuff, I just want to remind us, neither do we Protestants either, because we Protestants have suffered from immorality. Let me just remind you of a recent event this past week in the Southern Baptist Conference, the largest Protestant denomination in our country. 
is now delayed, the executive committee of that denomination has delayed a vote by a week about whether or not to allow an outside firm to come in and investigate abuse charges made against them. And if you, if you pay any attention to social media, which if you don't, God bless you, it's, it's great, you know, stay off that stuff as far as I'm concerned. It, I, I rarely find people walk away happy. Oh, what did you do today? Why are you so happy? I would look on social media. You know, uh, I just, I, it just rarely does someone walk away from social media feeling happy. Um, but you just see on social media people who are just like leaving the Southern Baptist Church because of their failure to address immorality. So before we think that maybe, you know what, Dan, what relevancy does that have? I mean, let me just say this. Even today, immorality is perhaps one of the most pervasive, maybe even one of the most dominant things, sins, if you will, that the churches today have to deal with. And I don't care if it's Catholic. I don't care if it's Protestant. I don't care if it's Eastern Orthodox. I don't care if it's non-denominational. It does not matter. Immorality is perhaps one of the most prevalent, most dominant sins that churches have to deal with. And this is no different here. Because the reality is that as we are talking about this idea of shifting, is that we know that more immorality is wrong. We know that immorality is absolutely against God's will. And what God desires more than anything else is something we, we know to be holiness. That is that idea of being set apart. That although we are in the world, we are not of the world. That's kind of a really, in my mind, a, a pretty good definition of holiness, is learning how to be in the world, but not of the world. Remember, if Jesus didn't want us to be in the world at all, he would have taken us out. But you remember that prayer he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he would be arrested and, and hung on that cross is when he prayed to the Father. Remember, and, and, and Peter, James, and John were, were sleeping, right? They couldn't even stay awake. Um, it was so late and it, they were so tired, but he was praying for them, and he was praying for the church in general. Remember, the, the key, one of the key components of that prayer was he said this, Father, do not, do not take them, I am not asking you to take them out of the world. Them being us, them being the church. I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world, but rather, minister, be a light, be a witness for me in it. That's really, really difficult to do. And so we know that God's desire for us as his followers is for us to be holy, to live a life that is honoring to him, to live a life that is absolutely separate from the rest of the world, that doesn't look like the rest of the world, for us to act, act and believe and, and behave in ways that are contrary to the way the world typically might act, believe, or behave. And so that is where that shift may need to come in. So the question is this, as we look at the very, very prevalent reality of immorality, as we look at this, how do we make that shift? How do we make that shift? This morning, we're going to look at two very simple, dare I say, elementary steps to do this. I think they're really important steps, even if they're elementary steps. I think in some ways they're going to be fairly obvious steps. I think in some ways we might be thinking, well, Dan, that's not very deep. That's child's play in, in, the, in, the, you know, in, the, in the river there or in the lake or whatever instead of an elephant swimming deep in it. But nonetheless, we'll, we're going to dive a little deeper, my hope is. But the two elementary steps that I think that we need to take whenever we may encounter immorality is so crucial that this church needed to take. And so we're going to look at that today. Now, just by way of reference here, the seven churches that Jesus addresses are all in modern-day Turkey. And I just want to put up an image for you of what that looks like of modern-day Turkey, the, the, the map here. So you see all of the seven churches that Jesus is addressing. Today, we are going to look at Thyatira which is a city that is more inland. It's a military outpost at that time, but had become kind of a, a merchant city. It's a small city, but as we're going to see, it has Jesus addresses the longest letter to them. The smallest city of the seven, but yet the longest of all the letters that Jesus addresses to these seven churches. And we're going to see why, and it's really, really important. But here's the thing. 
what do we do? How can we shift from immorality as a church, maybe even, even as individuals, if we ever encounter this, to holiness? Well, the first thing that we can do is this. Stop doing nothing. Stop doing nothing. I'll describe what I mean by this in just a minute here. But re remember this. Stop doing nothing. Okay? Here's what I mean. Let's take a look at Re Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. And Jesus shares the following. And he writes, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, says this. What I find so unique, and as we've been learning from these passages, is that Jesus approaches each church very specifically. Last week, he approached the church there with a sword, cuts both ways, to encourage as well as to challenge. Today, Jesus approaches this church as eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Interesting. What is that supposed to mean? What is that to symbolize? In many ways, what that symbolizes is two things. One is, Jesus sees past everything that we might have on the outside of ourselves and sees directly into our very own souls and hearts. That is what that most likely means about seeing with flames of fire. He can, you know, he knows, their, he knows his churches. He knows the essence of his churches. No church can fool him. He knows the heart of his churches. No church or churches can fool him. So that's one, is that he can see into the depths of what is going on there. And secondly here, feet like burnished bronze really implies kind of a judgment, almost like a purification. So Jesus is coming at it in two ways. He's saying, guess what? I know what's going on here. You cannot fool me. And secondly, I'm going to clean house unless you do it first. Does that make sense? So here's what was going on. He says this. I know your deeds. Again, eyes like a flame of fire. And your love and faith and service and perseverance. And that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Every single letter we have looked at so far has shared some sort of affirmation that a church that he is writing to or addressing is doing so well. A church that he is writing to is doing very, some very specific things so well. And here is no different. He is telling this church in Thyatira that, you know what, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. In other words, what, maybe when you were starting out at first, they weren't as good as they are now. But man, have you been improving. This has been wonderful. You love well. You persevere well. You serve well. This is wonderful. And yet we know that there's going to be a but. We know that there is going to be something that this church is not doing well. Let me just say this. Is that no church is perfect. Duh. No church has it all together. No church. Every single church has issues. Every single one. There are two reasons, I think. Two big reasons. Not the only reasons, but two big reasons why this may be the case. I want to share two quotes with you. One is from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon says this perhaps describing why churches are not perfect. The day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join it. Right? In the vernacular, I've heard it said this way. If you ever find the perfect church, don't go there, you'll just ruin it. Right? Here's a second quote. Martin Luther, founder of the uh, Lutheran church. Where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. Where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. In other words, perhaps two big reasons why there is no perfect church is two reasons. One is that we are just sinful people. Okay, we are just, we are just wrecked by sin. We are wrecked by sin, and, and it just shows, and it just comes out. It cannot help but come out. And secondly, we have an enemy that is set against us, that being Satan himself. And wherever there is a church, there will be Satan to try to do whatever he can to diminish, minimize, maybe even destroy the witness of that church or ministry. We are swimming against the current, brothers and sisters. There is no perfect church. Every church has issues. Here's the thing. What issues are you willing to put up with? 
What issues are you willing to put up with? What issues are you willing to say, you know what? I realize it's not perfect. I hope they're working on them. I hope they're trying to address them. Great. Maybe there are other churches um, you know, that, that you can be fine with because maybe you're not that involved in or whatever else and you can just ignore all the bad stuff and I'm just here to worship. That's all I'm here to do. I'm here to listen to the message and I'm here to go home and that's it. We are simply too small of a church for that to take place. Right? There is not a curtain big enough that I can put across here and say, don't mind the man behind the curtain. Just isn't. Can't hide from it. We are just simply too small. That's not going to work here. So the reality is, is that we, even at Summit Ridge, we are not a perfect church. We have issues. We have issues. Like any other church has issues. And I just want to just share that with you to understand this. That yes, we have issues. Every church has issues. But you know what is still amazing about this? Is that Jesus Christ chooses to still work through his church. He still loves the church. He still looks at the church as his bride, as imperfect as she is, as, as corrupt as she may be, as soiled as she may be. Jesus still looked at his bride and says, I love you. Period. And so let me just say this. I know that there are Christians who have given up on church, who have given up on the idea of church, who have said, you know what? I don't want church. I don't need church. I will not go to church. I get that. I understand that because they have been hurt by church. They have been hurt by the people inside those churches. Even here, we have hurt people. We know this. We own this. We are aware of this. We understand this, but let me just say to you, brothers and sisters, please, please, please never give up on the church because Jesus hasn't given up on it. Are you with me? What we do here is not normal. What we do here is hopefully give a glimpse, even if, a, if it's a tiny, small speck of light, a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like and of who Jesus Christ really is. I heard someone say this, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And by the way, we're all crooked sticks. And somehow, God draws straight lines. That is truly the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. In and through His church, Every church is imperfect, including this church in Thyatira. And they got so many things right. They served well. They loved well. They had great faith. They persevered. And yet, in verse 20, he says this. But, Jesus writes, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with plague, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Man, what is going on here? They tolerate this woman, Jezebel. What is going on here? Well, here possibly what was happening here. Thyatira was this small city filled with merchants. And here's the thing, is that what it was known for was known for both bronze and purple, hence the reason why Jesus comes with feet of bronze. That was no coincidence, by the way. That was speaking directly to one of the things the city was known for, was in its manufacturing of bronze. But it was also known for purple, for dyeing fabrics purple, which was a sign of royalty, a sign for kings and queens to use and to wear. And here's the thing, is that as a merchant, Whatever trade you were involved in, most likely what you had is you had a goddess or a god or several gods by which you would honor or give praise or worship to in return that they would bless your trade. 
And so one of the most common things that would happen in a guild or a trade is that, in terms of social celebration, is that you would get together with your fellow tradesmen and you would have these wonderful festivals in which you would eat food that had already been sacrificed to your particular god or gods, and you would eat this food. And then in addition to that is that you would also worship. And one of the ways that you would worship is that you would have these temple prostitutes who would make themselves available to you, and you would engage in immorality, sexual immorality with these prostitutes as a way to honor or worship the god or gods in your particular trade. By the way, oftentimes this was done to try to get the god or gods to act. They would see you engaging in this sexual immorality and they would think, oh, they're engaging in some sort of creation. Maybe I should also create, maybe create, them, create for them some sort of good, happy, bountiful you know, selling of their wares or in the production of their wares. It would in some ways kind of help the gods into action. Warped. We'll get there in just a minute. Anytime you need to inspire a god to act, I would question that God, okay? But here's on top of that, was that this church in Thyatira, most likely made up of many of these tradespeople, were engaging in this practice, and then what do you do? This church has this going on, they know it's probably not right, they know it's probably wrong, in fact, but then all of a sudden, lo and behold, this woman, who claims to be a prophetess, comes in and says the following, and says, guess what? A word from the Lord! That carries weight, by the way. Whenever you say something like a word from the Lord or thus saith the Lord, you better make sure that what you say is actually from God himself, otherwise you're in deep, deep trouble. I'd say doo-doo, but you get the idea, right? You are in deep trouble. She comes in and says a word from the Lord. Guess what? You can have your cake and eat it too. God says this. You can worship me, you can worship and follow Jesus, and you can still engage in your festivals and in your worship of your other gods or God in addition to that. It's okay. You can do both and. You don't have to give up one for the other. And if you were a tradesman at that point in the church, you might have been like, oh, I'm so relieved because you know what? If I don't do this, I can't have a job. If I don't engage in this, I'm out of a job. And if I don't have a job, I can't support my family. If I can't support my family, then all of a sudden we go hungry. And there is nothing else to back us up. And so we, I am so grateful for the freedom to be able to engage in both of these things. And I'm okay to do so. Now, we don't know if her name was really Jezebel. All we know is that Jesus calls her a Jezebel, which we know if you know anything about Israeli history, Jezebel was the most wicked queen ever in Israel. She was terrible absolutely terrible queen. She led the nation of Israel way off track from worshiping God and worshiping instead her gods. And she died a horrible death as a result of it. Died an absolutely horrible death. We don't know if her name was Jezebel, but we do know is that Jesus is at least referencing her to say this is absolute horrible stuff. And what she is saying is not right. By the way, immorality, the Greek word for that, is where we get our word porno. But more importantly, what I want to talk about is that this church, as Jesus writes, says you are tolerating her. You are tolerating this person. Now, the Greek word for toleration there is literally to leave it alone. To do nothing. To do nothing about it. To tolerate it means to literally just leave it alone. Do nothing. Just put up with it. And not only that, just work it into whatever it is that you're doing. Let me just say this. How many times have we encountered in human history someone who comes out claiming to be a prophet and says, the word of the Lord came to me and I am to start a new way of worshiping him Oftentimes, the new way would in some ways justify indulging in the most sinful urges and practices that a human being could ever come up with. And by the way, let me just be sexist just for a moment. It's really more men than anything else that comes out with these things. A word of the Lord came to me and says this. Think of Jim Jones. Think of David Koresh. Think of um, uh, Joseph Smith. Uh, think of all of these these guys that have come out. And really, when you get right down to it, the brass tacks of it is just to engage in their most sinful desires and urges that one can ever think of engaging in and calling it right, holy, acceptable, and the proper worship of God himself. How many times 
have these things started and women have been subjugated and treated horribly and told, well, that's what God says. So therefore, that's what you need to do. How many times has Ephesians chapter 5 been misused as a way instead of honoring women, but has now been used instead to demean them, to degrade them, to quote-unquote put them in their place. Women, I, I, I'm, I'm going to stall that. Let me just say that right up front here. Don't, you don't have to come up to me afterwards. Okay? How many times, ladies, have you been degraded and someone used Scripture to justify it? And how many times has that happened and no one did anything about it? said nothing, spoke up, did nothing. Let me just say this, brothers and sisters, if we think this is something that's just in the past and we don't have to worry about, I want to encourage you and challenge you and help you to understand that, oh no, this is a very real problem even today. How many times do we tolerate things that we never should have tolerated? How many times have we looked at behavior or something that someone said or even worse, someone did, and we chose to look the other way because we didn't want to get involved? because we didn't want to have to be the one to stick our neck out, because we didn't want to have to be the one to possibly take on the burden of what that might look like. And how many times have we just said, you know what, I'm just going to put... Don't raise your hand. Um, I'm sorry, I, I do that. That's just, it's just a Freudian, I, Freudian... Why even bring Freud into this? This is horrible. Um, uh, that's just a, a, a habit. We'll just call it a habit. My sinful self. Um, <laughs> How many of us have just chosen to look the other way when we see obvious wrong happening? More than likely, that was taking place here in Thyatira. But they had an excuse now. They had someone, a prophetess, come along and say, no, it's okay, it's all good. You can look the other way. And they did nothing, knowing that in the face of it, this was wrong. This was wrong. Have you ever been in a situation where you just knew what was going on here was wrong and nothing was said? It was tolerated. It was interesting, a, a recent survey came out talking about bad behavior in workplaces and asking people, you know, why didn't you speak up or why don't you speak up or why don't more people speak up when bad things happen in the workplace. And the number one reason that people don't speak up when bad behavior is taking place is because they believe speaking up will not change anything. They think, and probably rightly so, it will fall on deaf ears. Nothing will be done. Nothing. So why speak up? There are other reasons why. Fear of losing job. Fear of being labeled as a... Um, Traitor, not supporting the company, all of those kind of stuff. You know what the sad reality about that is? Is that, yes, that does happen in companies, and we have evidence of that all over the place. We certainly have seen that recently in places like Hollywood, in which there were executives who were treating women horribly, using their positions of power. It was an open secret, by the way, that these men in powerful positions we're taking advantage of women, committing sexual immorality with them, and nobody said anything. Nobody. Nobody said anything. And now all of a sudden we have this movement called the Me Too movement. And I, I get it. Um, grateful that there are women who are finally speaking up and saying, you know what, Me Too. This has happened to me. And sometimes, I get it, maybe we could take it too far. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I really don't know, but here's what I do know, is I am grateful now that women are speaking up and saying enough is enough is enough. This is enough. But you know what the sad reality is, is that what takes place sometimes in companies and in the world sometimes does infiltrate into the church, and unfortunately this is no different of what we see that has happened in the secular world has also taken place in the church in 2018, the Washington Post wrote an article, a scathing article called The Sin of Silence, all about the church's silence when it came to sexual abuse. And this is what the author wrote. I'm going to just share just a little bit of what he shared. 
says this, so many Christian churches in the United States do so much good, nourishing the soul, comforting the sick, providing services, counseling congregants, teaching Jesus' example, and even working to fight sexual abuse and harassment. But like in any community of faith, there is also sin, often silenced, ignored, and denied. And it is much more common than many want to believe. It has often led to failures by evangelicals to report sexual abuse, respond appropriately to victims, and change the institutional cultures that enabled the abuse in the first place. Do you know that as it is in the workplace, in the secular world, it is oftentimes also true in the church, is that there are things that happen in the church, dare I even say sexual abuse, horrible things that can happen in churches, and people for the most part stay silent, they tolerate it, they do not say anything, and they don't say it for so many reasons, and if they do say it, they're oftentimes excused, or, or not believed, or minimized, or whatever else. There are many reasons why this can happen. One of the reasons why I think is that as in the workplace, also here, is that there is a natural tendency to want to protect the institution of the church, to not damage the church, to not hurt the church. There's also a desire that if everything is going well, there's fruitful ministry. People are coming to know Jesus. People are coming into the church. The church is growing and great things are happening. And then all of a sudden, something like this gets lobbed in, that there will be a stop of momentum, that you are now compromising the witness of the church, that you are stopping the effectiveness that we are having. But look at all of the people who are being saved. Look at everyone who's coming into this church. How can you make that accusation now? You will mess up everything that's going on and going so good, as though we put it on a scale and say, well, the good outweighs the bad. The last I looked at it, even just a little bit of sin, no matter how good it may be, when it enters into that thing, becomes completely corrupted. Period. Period. And so we excuse it, and we say, well, there's great things happening. There's wonderful things happening. And so why would we want to stop this? And so we play it off. We minimize it. We try to deal with it under the table. In fact, here's a way. You want to talk about a wrong application of the idea of confronting someone as Jesus spelled out in Matthew about how to go to someone who is committing sin or has, you have a problem with someone. Talk about a wrong application is to tell a victim to go back to the person who victimized them and say, you did this to me and do it alone. How whacked and twisted is that? That's a bad application of that passage. And yet we do it here in the church. Well, you've got to go and confront your accuser by yourself. That's horrible. The person who abused you, you've got to go by yourself to them? No, that's not what Jesus meant by that passage in Matthew. And yet we do it here. Not here. I hope not. I've never encountered it, but in churches. In churches. That's a bad application. We are so conditioned, and we don't even know it, of doing nothing or not upsetting the apple cart or not doing anything that might stop what we believe, or at least more than that, told is the work of God. And if we bring this up, we will all of a sudden now sabotage the work of God. Since when did the work of God get looped in with all of that. And we begin to say things like when, when ministries are actually found out and pastors and prominent pastors have fallen as a result of what came out of the fact that they were committing sexual immorality. Entire ministries have imploded as a result of it. And you know what Christians, some Christians, not all Christians, walk away thinking, oh, the great tragedy of that church, man, is that they folded up, or the great tragedy of that ministry is that they went belly up and they are no longer able to witness. You know what the greater tragedy is? is that they abused people and did nothing about it. That's the greater tragedy. Church, we need to stop doing nothing. We need to stop doing nothing. Jesus says this, I gave this woman time to repent. I wanted her followers to repent, and they didn't do it. They don't want to do it. And in addition to that, there may be those who are just tolerating it because they can and are doing nothing about it. This is not right, church. So therefore, stop doing nothing, and here's the second part, and start doing something. Start doing something. 
Jesus says this in verse 24, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold firmly until I come. The one who overcomes and the one who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he shall rule with them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are shattered as I have received authority from my Father. Here's what we can do, church. We hold fast to the teachings of Jesus. We hold fast to the scriptures. We bring light into dark situations. We witness, and if necessary, we ought to speak up. When we see things that are happening to someone else that are wrong and we know it to be wrong, we need to speak up. And this isn't easy. I think of Nathan, the prophet, after David had his affair with Bathsheba. By the way, what the scriptures don't allude to, but I can't help but think of is the fact that David couldn't have hid this from everyone. He was king. He had a woman brought to him. You don't think that his servants didn't know what was going on? That those who were in the palace didn't know what was happening and didn't say anything? Probably didn't want to say anything because he knew that, well, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. Number two, if I say anything, I'll probably die. Number three, if I do say anything, at the very least, I'll probably lose my position, which I don't want to, and I need to support my family. All this kind of stuff was on the line. It was Nathan who was told by God to go to David, and Nathan is told by God, hey, go to, Nathan, go to David and say this stuff. Oh, and by the way, he doesn't say, and you'll live. He doesn't say you'll die either. He says, just go and do it. Go and speak up. Tell David what he did was wrong. Speak up. Speak up. We're really good at, in the churches about speaking up about issues of homosexuality and adultery and all of that stuff. We, are, we have yet to truly be able to really be comfortable with and speak up about people who have been abused. And to speak up for those who are the most vulnerable. We need to speak up. Sexual immorality cannot be truly dealt with until it is brought into the light. And Jesus is the light. The answer to sin is not more darkness. It's not more cover-up. It's not more of the same. It's not turning our backs and pretending it doesn't exist. The true way to confront sin is to call it out, to bring light to it. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's not easy. But it's simple. But it is simple. And so Jesus says to these people who have resisted, good for you. Keep holding fast. Keep following me. Keep being obedient. Speak up. Tell the truth. Shine the light. Church, we need to do the same. We need to do the same. We need to stop doing nothing and start doing something. What I'm grateful for is the fact that, at least here at Summit Ridge, um, I have sometimes likened myself to the Rodney Dangerfield of pastors. For those of you who are younger, you probably don't even remember Rodney Dangerfield. He, uh, his, his stick was, uh, I get no respect, right? Remember that? Uh, he would say things, I went to a dog show and I won, kind of thing. You know, he would say, it was just total deprecating, deprecating humor for him, you know. But I really appreciate that, because here's the thing that I love about this church, and I love about how we have structured ourselves, is that we have what's called a flat leadership structure. Yes, I am the lead pastor. But I do not have all authority invested in me, and I don't want it. I really don't. The one wonderful thing about this church is that it is a shared responsibility here, and that being shared hopefully lends itself to being able to say the hard things to me when they need to be said, and vice versa. And to never hesitate. If you see me doing something wrong, you call me out on it. Be nice, but call me out. I bruise easy. <laughs> 
but call me out. And I hope I can do the same with love, kindness, gentleness, but still speak up. Speak up. You have my permission. Listen to what I'm telling you. You have my permission to keep me accountable. So do it. I am not the only one who's anointed here. You can touch my Bible. It is not God's anointed. You're anointed as well. We're all anointed. It's all good. I am no more closer to God than you all are. I just happen to be the one who gets to sit up here, or sit up here, stand up here and speak and to lead because you all affirmed that on me. That never would have happened unless you said yes to me 15 years ago. Never would have happened. But you said it. Now I hope whatever I can do, what you have given to me, is use it wisely to lead us all to being more like Jesus. Speak up, church. Let us be light in the darkest of places. Jesus' obedience isn't necessarily burdensome, but it is inconvenient. Let's be inconvenienced. Amen? All right, you said it. Let's pray it. Jesus, I pray this morning that as your church, Lord, we recognize we are not a perfect church, that one of these letters of these seven that churches that you wrote to, Jesus, could have easily have been written to us. Father, I pray, please, forgive us for where we have fallen short for where we have not spoken up to where we needed to speak up, where we have not called out sin when we needed to, where we not have addressed sin, maybe because we are fearful of hurting someone's feelings, of losing someone, of being cast or blamed or labeled as being judgmental. Father, yes, those things maybe happen. But Father, I pray, please give us the courage to be obedient. Give us the courage to do something. To do something in a culture, in a world where it's all too easy to do nothing in the face of blatant sin and immorality. We are your people. You are our God. May we bring your light to this world. Amen. Amen.